Welcome back to Arsenal Pass, Time in the Round, Episode 21. Today we're joined by Tarek Patel. Tarek is the recently crowned United States national champion. He's also the prime architect of the most recent deck to take flesh and blood by storm, Lightning Briar. Anyways, Tarek, thank you so much for joining us. And how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Can't complain. Happy to be here. And thank you for having me. Yeah, I must feel on top of the world after that win. Obviously an incredible achievement. I said this during one of my interviews that because um, they were asking us to kind of make predictions on who we wanted to win. Uh, and I think that for you, it's probably one of the most interesting and kind of incredible stories we've had in Flesh and Blood, right? So we have someone that comes from Magic the Gathering, comes in, and in a short amount of time is able to learn the game and excel to a level where they're actually the national champion. So not much higher than that at this point. Um, so really a great narrative. And I think it, you know, it really just showed that hard work paid off because we saw you go through that circuit, right? Um, there's all the work and the practice that goes into you know playing a before a professional event, but you went to Dallas, got that crushing bubble out at ninth, but then doubled down, went into Cincinnati, almost got the gold then, and then rematch in the finals, and you take it home. So incredible. I do want to start off by asking you, you know, we do we, we talked about kind of a little bit here. You came from the Magic the Gathering as your background. So what what was the transition and what drew you to Flesh and Blood? Right. So at the beginning of the summer, I think was when LSS first kind of announced their pro scene. Uh, I remember the big announcement um, regarding the callings, the prize money, the potential pro scene in 2022. And it really captivated me because at the time, uh, as you may or may not be aware, I think Wizards of the Coast was kind of moving away from uh, whatever structure they had over the last three years. Um, and while EDH and, and the casual play is fine, it doesn't kind of entice me the same way that a competitive environment really does. Uh, and to take it a step further, you know, I'd always enjoyed playing Magic at kind of the highest level. I was kind of around the SCG for years, the Grand Prix, the Pro Tours. Um, but I was never at a place in my life where I could really compete on it for a good solid period at a time. And I always kind of airmarked this part of my life that when I have more time, I can kind of throw myself into gaming a little bit more and kind of get a little bit more competitive. So... I kind of saw, you know, here's this new upcoming game that I've heard a lot about from, you know, various different friends who own stores and play card games, and they've said nothing about positive things. And their kind of direction is is aligned with where, you know, my future goals are directed as well. So I took the leap and I decided to learn the game. Awesome. So you sorry, Hayden, go ahead. I was just say because Tarek, people may not know, but it's not just like you you were a grinder and played a bit of magic. Like you had reasonable success in magic the gathering right like multiple gp top eights uh can you tell us a little about your your resume and and your i guess your previous tcg life yeah sure i mean it's it's weird to talk about because you know i don't like to keep track you know i've never been the guy that kind of advertises uh my top eights on my twitter profile or anything like that um but you know yeah i've had uh multiple scg top eights i was on the scg tour for a while uh, doing the whole leaderboard race thing. I have an invitational top eight, Grand Prix top eight. They say everything except for success on the pro tour level because th those guys are just another level. And honestly, the opportunities weren't always there for me. You know, a lot of the times when I, I tried to compete, it was, you know, in the middle of school or something else going on. And that's why I kind of earmarked this part of my life so that, you know, one day I could try get to that level and, you know, try and stay on that pro tour train as it was called back in the day. Uh, but, you know, Wizards of the Coast, life, everything else took a turn and, you know, things changed. So, um, so here we are today. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a question kind of about, <laughs> yeah, I think we said it in a funny way, be what's your cheat code, but <laughs> what do you think is your key to success, right? You picked up the game and in a short amount of time, we're able to achieve um, an incredible amount of success. Like even if you weren't, you didn't become the national champion. If you were, let's say we stopped at Dallas, still a serious achievement for someone who was had only been playing for as long as you did how did you how did you approach like learning the game and then also <laughs> how did you get good so fast right because it feels like sometimes you know it's local scene dependent it's you know kind of who you know does someone take you under their wing what was your you know what was your way to i don't know increase your skill level as fast as you did a uh, large part of it has to do with luck right timing and circumstance i think in anything you do in life has a huge part to play in, in anything um, so I was, a uh, just the right guy with the right background and I was in the right area. Uh, you mentioned people that helped me, you know, Rob Seigel, who I know you two are familiar with, uh, lives like 10 minutes down from me. 
And it really helps having somebody like that who has been around the game since its inception uh, be near you, kind of befriend you, and, you know, is available to kind of walk you through kind of, you know, how to learn the game, how to start thinking about the game properly. And it really kind of springboarded me to, you know, where I am today. Uh, in terms of actual process, um, it's kind of just doing the same things I've been doing over and over again in various different games across uh, ver various uh, number of years and just kind of applying the same kind of methodology to um, flesh and blood. Um, I'm the kind of guy that I hate heuristics to to an extent. You know, I do not believe uh, that you should listen to the general consensus on a lot of things because people, A, take shortcuts. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into understanding something, like truly understanding something. And it's very easy to fool yourself in a lot of ways that certain things work in a certain way. So anytime I start something new or I have an endeavor I want to understand, I really kind of just break things down to their first principles, their core concepts, and I try and rebuild it back up. And I'd say like 95% of the time, they do end up lining up with the common heuristics or consensus out there, right? There's a reason why common sense is common. But, you know, the edge in most of these games or anything you do in life is in that like 5% where where the, the stuff you discover is, is what makes it special and what makes what you do unique that other people kind of haven't figured out or uh, maybe might be doing a little bit. Yeah. I mean, see, so I think a good example of these is like 95% of the time you'll, you'll be in line with the heuristics and 5% of the time you'll create a lightning briar deck. <laughs> yeah. You could say something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a good place to start. Right. And you, you talked about, you're pretty humble there, Tarek, right? You talked about, you know, in terms of, I guess, just you said right, right guy, right time. But I think if you look at it and you just talked about your methodology and how you approach things, I think if you if you look at the game of Flesh and Blood, the way that you approach uh, TCGs and the way you approach your methodology lines up so well with how Flesh and Blood works because it's a very, very deep game. And uh, a lot of the time, in-depth understanding is actually the most important thing about this game. You can't just take a high level... You know, if we talk about other games where maybe you can pick up a deck list, right? And you can run with it with a few sort of heuristics, right? Someone can tell you a few things and you can run with it. It's very difficult to do in this game when there's a lot of nuance to uh, turn-based structures to game-based structures so you know for someone like yourself who really breaks that down and builds it back up i think flesh and blood as it turns out is just like kind of the perfect game for you yeah for sure i was saying this the other day um this game revolves around tempo and i think that is the least understood concept in any card game ever uh i know you know the personalities you know cedric phillips and patrick Sullivan, they love joking about like what is tempo and they go back and forth and there's they are like they have a whole bit on the on the damn thing but they're right in a sense right you know you'll hear players at, at shops like throw that term out all the all the time you know like maintain tempo you know keep the tempo you gotta shift the tempo but like nobody really understands what that means and it bodes well for a newcomer in this game when you know card advantage is just not a thing to sell to to an extent, right? Because there's that hard reset at every turn where you're, you're functionally drawing back up to four cards. So and, and the board set is functionally wiped clean for the most part. So everything that came before, you know, is, is almost irrelevant. And all that's left at the end of the day is like your life total and then the tempo of your plays. So it has been advantageous to really break stuff down because the concepts employed in Flesh and Blood are so alien, I'd say, to any other TCG or card game that I've ever played or experienced. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way to put it. I love, I love the, uh, I love the word tempo because, like you said, everybody's got a different definition. It feels like it. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so, can you talk to me a little bit about the Lightning Briar deck? I think I understand its origin story, but what was the catalyst um, that spawned this new archetype, per se? The catalyst was uh, one day I did a draft, and uh, I have a big rule that when I don't know what's going on, just keep it simple, stupid. So. You know, take all the ones, take all the zeros, just keep it simple. Uh, don't think too much. And so I drafted a really low curve deck with a bunch of zeros and ones, and it worked super, super well. And I started breaking down, you know, why did this work so well? Why did somebody with very little experience be able to relatively dominate people who had seemingly a lot more experience and understanding of the game? I wasn't playing particularly well at first, too, right? Mistakes are how you learn, so I was definitely missequencing stuff. But I always felt like super hard, far ahead, no matter how I, I messed up. So I like to say to pass the donkey test, I was the donkey. And no matter how much I messed up, it was like it was doing good. So from there, I kind of went on and I was like, can I make this a constructed deck? You know, um, 
what advantages or disadvantages would I have? The obvious disadvantage is cards that cost one or zero are obviously a little bit weaker than cards that cost two or three. But the massive advantage is, is that if I, I have a one extra card, because I do not need to pay for a card, um, because in this game, the cards are, are intrinsically the resources in of themselves. So if you start with four cards and you use one to pay for a resource, you're only left with three in hand. So by having that concept of everything being free, I was functionally up a card every turn. And that alone, even through poor play or um, you know being a little bit weaker in terms of card for card, the way they lined up, was enough of an advantage to kind of push it over the edge. And that's kind of where the idea kind of took off. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how it started. Yeah. So you, you make this constructive deck, right? Did, did you see success immediately or did, uh, were there some kind of rocky beginnings? Ooh, there were some rocky beginnings. I'm not. So the first version of the deck had, instead of Grasp of the Arknight, I was playing uh, Mark of Lightning, the common, because mm-hmm. I'm like, like one damage and I play a lot of ball lightnings, two damage. Like this is perfect. And it had like, like Coax of Commotion, which was like just the worst card in the world. And, you know, it had so many of these like little janky zero for fours that, you know, the deck was not cohesive, but, you know, it came together at times. You know, there are times where it would drop the non-attack, non-attack, action, attack, attack, and it would just come in for like 15 damage off of like a base card forehand. So I knew there was something there. It was, you know, putting the little pieces together and how do I fix the inconsistencies that took like a month. But the original concept was was solid. And you can tell that very quickly when you start a new deck, as I'm sure you guys too, you know, when you're playing around with new brews and new kind of ideas, you know when you have something special, even if it doesn't always work. You know, I call it losing well. You know, you get you get the crap beat out of you, but you're like, that felt like a good loss. Like I'm onto something. <laughs> and then you keep playing. You know what I mean? I feel like they're good losses and they're bad losses. When you get beat bad, you're like, I'm done with this. I'm never playing this deck again. This deck was like I was getting beaten a lot when I when I first started, but I'm like, there's something here. I don't mind losing. I'm gonna keep working at it. So I think that the the narrative of this deck actually gets even more interesting, right? So you create this deck and you start seeing success. So let's say we start we start finding it a bit. Um, it looks really good, but then somebody top eights with it, and next thing you know, it's the it's the talk of the town, right? This is the this is the hot deck around. It goes nine zero in uh, UK nationals. Now we got a big problem, tech. Now we got to figure out how do we get an edge in the mirror. So what do you, what's going through your head right then? Like you, you effectively broke the format. We look at like UK nationals and how well it performed there. That could have been you at US nationals. Obviously, your result ended up being good anyway. But you know what went through your head and like how are you going to tackle that new problem? Because it's it's a massive problem, right? Like your deck is now the deck, right? It became like twenty five percent of the meta or something like that. Um, effectively, right? There's probably some earth briars in there as well. Yeah, so that's a great question. I'm going to quote my friend for a little bit because after I ended up winning Nationals, he doesn't play Flesh and Blood, but he he knew about the deck's origin. He He's like a good friend of mine. He plays a lot of uh, Magic with me from time to time. But he asked me if I felt unlucky that my deck got leaked or that I felt lucky that I won the championship. So <laughs> I thought that was an eloquent way to put it. Uh, but yeah, so um, you know, I, I thought about that a lot, probably way more than I should have, of how free of a tournament it would have been you know, had the deck knockout leaked and everybody had just been on like Bravo and Prism and had never even seen the deck before. And how, if I could just take it into such an open field, it would have been uh, such a free roll. But uh, like you said, you know, when I first made the deck, I was so new to the game that I shared it with a couple people because I'm not egotistical enough to join a new game, make a new deck and go, this is the best thing since sliced bread. Like I'm not sharing it with anyone. I'm keeping it close to the chest. Um, and you know, I shared it with a couple people in Europe. Um, so I kind of always knew that it would be in Europe to start with. Um, and to be fair, I wasn't even queued for nationals at that time. So when I was making this deck, I was only making it for the Orlando calling. I was not making it for the U.S. nationals because um, I wasn't queued. I missed the RTN season, you know. Um, so I was just kind of doing it for the fun of doing it. And I think that was a big part of it, too, as I was having fun playing this game. You know, I was playing around with different ideas just for the sake of it. And with a concept like this, especially the concept that hasn't been seen in flesh and blood per se anymore, you know, when I showed it to my friend, he was like, this is mind blowing. Like, I never consider that we don't actually have to pay for cards. And, you know, it just takes one person to talk to one person and then it kind of trees out, you know, with me being at the, the point, it's like an inverse funnel. And um, and from there, yeah, it got to uh, Chris Higashi. 
I remember I was in Cincinnati. I think I just finished my top eight or top four match. And I look over and all I hear is like Chris Agashi go like Captain Call Blue and Zenibalism. <laughs> and I'm like, I was like, what in the heck? Like, who plays those cards? So I go over to him and I asked him, I was like, hey, just out of curiosity, like, where, where'd you get the deck from? And he told me a name and I'd recognize the, the name at that point. Because at that point, enough people knew about it. It, it kind of traveled in the flesh and blood ex magic player community mm-hmm. that I was getting messages from people I'd either played with on the circuit before um, or I'd seen at GPs before. And they kind of hit me up being like, hey, I got this deck from so and so grinder. Uh, he said, you kind of came up with it. What, are your, what is your updated list? What is this? What is that? So I kind of knew it was going around, but I thought it, it could be self-contained. And to, to an extent, I actually didn't think it would be that big of a problem if it was just spoiled at UK National, okay? Because the, the original thing that happened was when Higashi top aided Cincinnati, it was on the map, right? I remember watching a YouTube video where somebody kind of goes over it. And he like breaks over the deck list and then he goes back and he goes, okay, there was actually nothing that cost mana in this except for Electrify. Um, so Higashi top aiding the pro quest kind of put the seed in people's brains of, you know, is this deck real? Is it not? And if you remember the discourse after that event was, you know, oh, this deck is just hyper aggro. It's very like linear, which I guess it is linear, but it's easily countered by fatigue strategies. It's easy countered by X. It's you can play Y, you can play Z. And it wasn't until uh, folks ended up going 15-0 and then like three other people top aiding, um, you know, with the list that it kind of cemented in people's mind going, okay, this is a real entity. This is something we need to either t- a test against, come up with a plan, or B, be playing ourselves. And I think had it had Higashi not top aided and it just be uh, like a UK thing and only one or two people in the UK, those questions would have happened at the U like a week before the US Nationals. And the deck list wouldn't even have come out until, you know, the Wednesday before. And at which point, you know, people aren't going to give up months of testing and their pet decks to kind of switch decks the night before. But, you know, with a two-week buffer, I think that was enough comfort zone for a lot of people who have already thought about the deck, play with it a little bit, and kind of make the switch over. Yeah, UK Nationals is very much the uh, the proof of concept, right? To answer the question we were all wondering, which is like, was the deck even, you know, was it good enough in an open field? And the answer was yes, right? Because uh, on the ProQuest, you can kind of, you know, you can, what we sometimes call gem format, your way up to top eight, right? You can just get favorable matchups. But if you look at something like UK Nationals, it's going to be quite harder, um, quite a yeah. bit harder. Yeah, for sure. You can win with anything, stuff like Earth Briar and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering that. Hey. <laughs> you might even bring it to nationals. It's even worse. So that's hilarious because Earth Briar was actually dumpstering everything in the in the in the format as well. But uh, somebody created a deck and um, played that. Yeah, I got to play that matchup and figured, well, this isn't a very good matchup for Earth Briar. So you know, I was on Lightning Briar the night before, like my 100% switch. Like, there's no way I'm going back. Mm-hmm. And then I just had my friend Zach convince me, and unfortunately, he convinced me of the wrong thing. But um. Uh, the uh, so I ended up playing the calling because nationals didn't go well, and I went up to Tar- uh, Tarek and I was like, "Hey man, it's not going well for me. I don't know if you have any teammates that are in like the calling, but if you want to shoot me the list, like I'll play it tomorrow because obviously it's doing really well." He was kind enough to give it to us, and uh, because obviously when we get to the calling or even nationals at Orlando, you got to an- there's a big question you got to answer, which is how do you win the mirror, right? Because you're right. gonna be playing mostly mirrors, at least the fourth statistically. Um, there's a little card in there that I didn't believe in at first, but uh, it's a good card. It's called the Yellow Ravenous Ravel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, that's it. That's pretty much it. I mean, the, I just the one thing I want to kind of recall here is the quote that you said to me was that the first person that stumbles loses. I think it's very accurate. Yeah, and that that's kind of what we found in in the mirror match of of testing is that the edges and the margins were so small that the biggest edge we can do is kind of just guarantee we don't draw. Uh, four non-attack action hands or four attack actions or not enough go again so really since uk nationals or the i guess a little bit before uk nationals up till us was like us just doing iterations and iterations on how do we make this thing the most you know sound humming machine we can we can make like how do we make it so we never stumble in the mirror match how do we make it so uh once we have a tempo edge tempo we just never (laughs) give it up Um, i think uh Go before I toss this over to you, Hayden. I want to mention just for for anybody who wasn't wasn't like participating in this kind of like great game that we were all playing. We were trying to break the mirror. There's a lot of mirror tech out there, right? Um, there's there's a whole there's like a team on Flash Freeze. Um, you know, people on significantly different versions of the deck, like Tyler Horsepool. His deck very different, right? Had the Rites of Lightning, like all these one costs. It was crazy. You know, much much different from the core ethos of the deck. 
Um, like our mirror attack initially was to run things like Force of Nature um, and obviously Pulse of Candlehold, which made it into the original list anyway, uh, in terms of like kind of value block, but also Force of Nature functions as a you know, an additional draw trigger or anything that has a buffed attack. So this was like a funny game that all of the Lightning Briar players are trying to play the day before, you know, Nationals, but even more so the day before the calling, right? Because, you know, if we, because after, you know, the calling started the day after Nationals, we all could see Tarek's, like Tarek's list was on stream. You could go watch it and you could kind of snag it, right? So it was a, it's a funny little mind game. Yeah, and I think that's where most of my edge actually came from was I had basically a month of testing to kind of work out the little things. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd gone through iterations with Force of Nature. I'd gone through iterations with uh, Rites of Lightning and stuff like that. And uh, I think that was the only le the edge left that I had was, you know, having played with the deck a little bit longer than most people and coming to conclusions that I did. Yeah, you'd done all those things. And it's, uh, it's I think it's really important to say because you, obviously you refined this deck so much, Tarek, and you played it a lot. And, you know, as you say, you had more time with it than, than other players. That's one thing, but the the mirror and the edges that you came with i uh, came up with it's still a skill match like it's still it's not just you run it in and uh you know whoever draws better wins right there's still like lines of play in there there's still uh you know turns you're lining up with your embodiments uh where you're trying to force like uh i guess in terms like trying to swing some tempo in some terms where you're trying to like back end like um the embodiment turns and having played like you know picking up your list on that on that saturday for the calling and playing a lot of mirrors like i was actually surprised just how uh i guess there's actually a lot of edges that you can gain the more you know about the deck or the more you've played with it or maybe the more aware you are of certain i guess interactions or things that you can do so i thought it was also really surprising as well that it's not just you know it's not just like this list is super aggressive and it's uh draw dependent as much as you're tuned it and tweaked it there's also a lot of play to it as well which was yeah it was really cool to see yeah i know for sure there's you know little micro decisions here and there the gentleman that came eighth place uh, i forget his name now but uh he recently did a deck tech on it himself and he was saying a lot of really good points so um if anybody wants any kind of tips and pointers you know i agree with in a large part of the stuff he said uh his deck list was a little bit significantly well not a little bit it was significantly different than mine they were playing the rights of lightning and so forth but the core idea of you know knowing when to block knowing when to give one card up to prevent you know potential eight damage is is a big part of it right because mm -hmm. like if you block a card that has a draw effect on it like a snatch as the last card not only are you preventing the four damage that the snap represents you're preventing a subsequent card from going in an arsenal, which is an additional four damage. So you're you're functionally blocking for eight, and you know just little things like that. Uh, the play draw decision was an interesting back and forth. You know, Ooh, all my opponents. Um, I took the draw. Yeah, for sure. So I'm I'm of the strongest belief that you should be on the draw in the mirror. And I had opponents that kind of looked at me strange and like basically just like flat out told me I'm wrong. And I'm like, all right, just just please make your first play. Like I don't need to know why. But um, yeah, so it was a back and forth all weekend. A lot of opponents swore by going first. A lot of people like myself swore by going second. Um, all I can do is kind of provide my rationale and let you as the viewer decide. So, and then Brendan, maybe you can give me your thoughts after because I'm, I'm not actually sure what you guys were choosing in the calling or uh, like whether to go first or second. But for me, and I will say it, it goes back to, there was a, a gentleman that kind of was on the deck for UK Nationals and he did a deck tech on it. And I think he recounts a game where he took the draw against eventual winner Matt Folks. And he talks about how had he only been on the play, he would have won. And he recounts he had a hand of like lightning press and ball lightning and two cards. And folks came in with just his whole hand and dealt like 10 damage to him turn one. And he functionally lost the game. And I just want to say that like I acknowledge that that is a possibility. You can just draw hands that don't block well. And your opponent just comes in off the bat for you know a ton of damage. But more than likely, what ends up happening is your opponent wants to end their first turn with an arsenal. So they're playing with three cards. And they can really kind of put nine to twelve damage damage at you. And if you have a relatively decent hand, you're probably only leaking two to three damage on average. And what that means is that you as the player going second, you get to reciprocate with 12 damage plus an arsenal card yourself. And your opponent either has to take the damage, in which case you're up a turn cycle, right? Because 12, 12, 12, 12, all the way to zero, you're going to win that race. Or they have to be the first one to block, and then they're down cards for their subsequent turn cycle. So I think the advantage that you get for going second and being the first one to draw real blood is much more valuable than leaking to two, two to three arcane damage with, with you know certain draws.
but I'll pass it to you. And hundred percent. So I think that you're right. So there is, there's definitely an aspect to getting in the first damage. You also get the first, you, you don't get the first embodiments, like usually the first kind of effective embodiments, one to two, um, usually two plus. That's really where you want to be key. So the reason why I like being on the play is I, I see the deck as sort of a plunder run deck. Um, in the sense, and the chance to have a plunder on Arsenal on turn one, quite good. But also getting, it's pretty consistent that you're able to get one embodiment, right? The damage is slightly irrelevant. Um, I think when you, you know, if you do kind of, I, I think it's always incorrect to blast your four card hand. But if let's say you blast your three card hand, you do end up getting like five damage on them or something. That's not so good. The two embodiments can be quite good as well. And if you're able to Arsenal that plunder on, I think that's really kind of what takes it to the next level, right? Mm-hmm. The thing is, is like, it's interesting because it's like even the question is like, I think where it gets confusing and kind of, you know, the real interesting comes in is like, when is a card actually like, when do you actually commit a non-attack action to block? Because sometimes, you know, you'll have you know, two, three embodiments, but still blocking that attack for four or is just not effective, right? Denying that embodiment, anything like that. So because sometimes that attack actually just want to keep wants to keep, you know, it's five card hand, right? Because those are your explosive hands. Maybe you've drawn the sting or something like this. But the reason why I like to go first is to try to get the first embodiment. Um, if I can get two, it's amazing. Obviously, there's a downside if you don't get any. I think it's actually worse to go first. But I also want to be the first player to play a five card hand, right? Especially when my deck has nine plunder runs. Um, I found it to be quite effective. Hayden, what about you? <laughs> yeah, um, so I'm, I'm in between. The both, the both of you, I think in, in the weekend just been, uh, I was perfectly happy to go second because uh, I think my opponents didn't realize just how uh, ineffectively the deck can defend without any embodiments. Obviously, you've got you've got zero blocks, you've got uh, two blocks, um, and so I was pretty happy that my opponents probably wouldn't just like throw gas at me. They'd probably just like create a rune chant, maybe create an embodiment of lightning, arsenal pass, depending on what mm-hmm. the hand looked like. Um, maybe they'd play like uh, um, Arcanic Shockwave and get in like for one embodiment or something. Um, but that's actually similar to how I felt as well. Like I think moving forward with players knowing the deck list a bit more and it being a bit more open, uh, I, I actually think I do want to be going first personally for a lot of the reasons Brendan's just said. But if, also I think the, the, the thing that you mentioned, um, Tarek, I think people are a lot more aware of, of how poorly the deck defends, especially on like turn zero, um, which is kind of my consideration. But I mean, the other thing as well is like the deck list is going to change. I'm sure like people are going to iterate on this now that it's open, right? Like they don't have the same, whether it's you who does it or whether it's someone else, because they don't have the information that you have around like testing force of nature or things like that. Like the deck list will still continue to change. So um, I think for, for me across the weekend, I chose to to play in the mirror whenever I won the, whenever I won the, won the dice roll. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I saw it. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not extremely confident because there's, it's weird because there is there's a very solid I feel like there's really solid arguments for both sides, right? And it's just like I you just gotta figure out where the delta is on like you know, like when it ends up terribly, right? Because if you do go first and like um, you know, if you don't create an embodiment and you don't arsenal something that's relevant, it it really sucks. Um like if you do do the double non attack and play embodiment of lightning, uh that's okay, right? You have a five card hand coming up with an embodiment of lightning, but I really think you need the plunder on to push that over. So I think both have their merits. I mean, what I really like about the mirror is that um it for me it, it usually didn't matter, right? Because that the mirror actually would felt quite scale based, right? So I know it's funny, I, I want to pull attention to something that Tarek said because it's hilarious because you hear him say, um, I wasn't planning on playing this deck because I missed the road to national season. I should put it in perspective with how <laughs> where Tarek, Tarek is when you know joining this game and how much he's achieved and how quickly he has. He said, "I missed the road to national season." That's unbelievable. Because like I would pull back and I'd say like, "Yeah, it's not like chain mirrors where you know it is skill based <laughs> until someone does some kind of bullshit where it's like an art of war or something like that." Um, where this is like this feels like a chain mirror with all the BS that's cut out. Right? It's all micro decisions, all sequencing. Um, it's all about tempo, like you said. Yeah, so just to clarify for a second, Hayden, you're a proponent of going first. Brendan, you're kind of on the fence, but you're leaning towards more going first. And I'm uh, on the draw. Yep, I'm. Uh, I probably lean towards going first as well. All right, then I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna make a comment or ask a question, I guess, because you you said something that I kind of agree with. You said the deck largely revolves around your power turns revolve around plunder run. True. Mm-hmm. So would that not make more sense than wanting to go second? If, for example, the player that goes second usually sees eight cards, seven to eight cards, because you get to cycle your hand. And the player going first really only sees four cards. So there's a higher chance, at least in my mind, that if I go second, I'm more likely to start with an Arsenal plunder run than if you go first. Thoughts about sure. that? 
Yeah. So the question is if your opponent allows you to filter your hand, right? Because I only think you let you attack into your opponent if you're able to get an effective amount of embodiments, right? So if you're able to get the one embodiment of Earth, then maybe that you know there's there's a question to do that. But you're also putting them at 39 and turning on the scars. Sometimes the most effective thing can be to arsenal the plunder and create the embodiment of lightning and pass. Therefore, you're seeing more cards being the first player to play five card stands, and your opponent has no option to filter. So I think that that may be the most ideal because there is there is like a very knee jerk reaction to be like, okay, I have arcanic um, arcanic shockwave and a fuse card. I'm going to play that, get an embodiment, and then but you're putting a, a deck to 39 that plays three scar for scars and all this kind of silliness. I think that there's a lot of danger there, right? And they also you also turn on their skull cap. Fair enough. So, so yeah, I think good good points all around, and you, the viewer, can decide going into. Uh, I know the Canadian Nats is this weekend, and there are a couple other nationals, and you at home can decide whether you want to uh, do what I suggest or uh, be wrong. So uh, I was yeah, going to say, I would say one of us, one of us is a national champion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, one of us is. So, uh, and, and just if I could pivot for a second, because this, this leads to a really good discussion, and I wanted to talk about the card force of nature a little bit more, if you guys don't mind. Uh, Go for it just uh, humoring me. But, you know, there's a lot of good talk this weekend. I knew Jacob Ba, who's his deck largely revolved, revolved around Force of Nature. And I know Jacob back from the Magic days. And I know he's just an amazing card player in of itself. Like, he's always impressed me on the SCG tour. Uh, he impressed me all weekend. Um, and he was a very high proponent of it. And in my head and in my testing, I'm just, I'm not going to give an opinion. I'm just going to kind of state what I found to be true. And then you guys can kind of weigh in. But Force of Nature, his point was, it's kind of like always like a plunder run. Um, you plan and play it out the start of your chain, you kind of represent multiple attacks, and you get to draw off each separate instance of uh, an attack dealing damage, which is why it's good. But my experience has been, let's say best case scenario, you start, you, you don't block it all in the mirror or any matchup, and you start with a five-card hand, right? Force of Nature and Arsenal, two attack actions, and then two pump spells, right? Because in order to get the buff off of, or the effect of Force of Nature, because you're not fusing it with our deck, you functionally need uh, an attack uh, a buff so if you play force of nature then you play a pump spell and then you play an attack okay the first hit that happens the card functionally just cycles itself you're giving up force of nature to draw a card so you're not netting anything okay and then you come in with your second attack if i block it or in this case you know i block the first one and then let the second one through and you don't draw exactly another attack action or even if you do, you're not getting any additional value because you're out of cards, right? If you go Force of Nature, Pump Spell, Attack, I block the first one. You then follow up with Pump Spell, Attack, with the second one. No matter what you draw, you can't get an additional third value off of your Force of Nature. It literally needs to be either uh, a Plunder Run buffed Force of Nature or a Snatch buff to really draw two cards. And then even then you need another Pump Spell plus Attack to keep going. Um, which is why a lot of the time Plunder Run in the mirror match is the first card I block with in the late game because in order to get value off it, you need to arsenal it. Otherwise, it kind of just cycles itself, best case scenario. So yeah. for me, playing out a naked force of nature, a lot of the times is not kind of what I wanted to be doing in the mirror. And a lot of the times it was just kind of just cycling itself. So And it was upping my blue count too. Yeah. If you guys want to comment. I, I did one to that. There's, there's one I completely agree, and that's like, a thought process that I thought through is always one sort of uh, addition to that is that if you play a plunder on from Arsenal plus the Force of Nature, you get that additional buff plus the ability to cycle a card like you talked about with like the Lightning Press on Snatch, for instance. So there's like, there's one kind of caveat to that a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, completely agree. I think the 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 side to it with like the Force of Nature as well is like the, what what's the other reason you're playing that card? <clears throat> so if you're playing that as like uh, for Lock. the idea of plunder runs, you know, 10 through 12, I think that probably never makes your deck. I think it's got to have reason to be in there, whether it be the fact that it's a, a non-attack action that defends three. So it has the ability to defend four uh, in a mirror match where four is the most important crucial number in the in that, in that game um, off one embodiment. Or if it, the fact that, uh, you know, if you are worried about these these ice decks, these channel like frigid decks, and you are trying to get your blue count to maybe 12, then this is, a, I guess, a, an option to play this card. But um I think like it wasn't for for us specifically. I don't think it was like an auto include. I think it was like a card that we were were trying out. Um, you know, in, in conjunction with the pulse, yeah. Sure. So, um, which so probably the main reason we cut it from the deck is like it pulled away from the core competency of the deck a little bit too much. But the idea is like if we talk about defensive breakpoint. So the actual, I think that there there was like a dual functionality with like it almost leading 
you know, more important, the more important value of this card is actually to block, right? So we have one embodiment, we block from forest, blanking, you know, most of the unpumped cards in the deck um, and denying embodiments, especially things like snatching the end of the chain. If we have two embodiments, it blocks for five, right? But then five plus a piece of armor or plus a other, you know, let's say an attack action that blocks for two, like a, like a rabble or something. Now you're blocking, now you're blanking like red plunder runs, right? You're blanking mm -hmm. the red plunder run plus the attack action that's coming in for seven. So that's like mainly we're trying to see how can we get the most value out of a card that, you know, when we're trying to value block our opponent, but then also might have this sort of dual purpose where it can be useful, right? Especially off a lightning press or like Hayden said, off the, off the plunder or something like that. But ultimately it was, we were looking for value out of blocking. Uh, so that was kind of the way we were taking it while we're, the way you guys were taking it um, or the way yourself was thinking it was just you add in the yellow rabbles, right? Which is the, the total opposite direction. No, and those are some really good points. And I think going forward, especially like Hayden mentioned, we're going to see an increase in ice decks. If I want those blue spells, uh, or sorry, blue pitch cost cards, you know, 9 through 12, 12 through 15, Force of Nature, I think, is going to be one of the first cards I go to. So, you know, I definitely think I'm undervaluing the defensive value, probably just because I was playing a little bit more Rabbles. But I think, yeah, you guys are definitely correct. And I'm going to be looking at it a little bit closer going. Definitely forward. sucks off a Rabble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially a yellow Rabble. Oh, oh yeah. Come yeah, those blues. Yeah, those blues are rough off the yellow rabbles for sure. Um, yeah, always. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I may. I've, I'm thinking I'm gonna make a career out of hitting Sting of Sorcery off the top every time I play <laughs> rabble. Just fucking right in the nuts. I'm just like, oh come on. Yeah, but um, good. yeah. So I mean, that was a way. That was a way better conversation. Like that was that was incredible. That was like that's exact. That's exactly the kind of conversation I want to have about the deck because that's that's really the thing that breaks the mirror, right? Is when you can figure out those questions or at least explore them. Um, is how you get your edge and how you ultimately are able. Because if you if you bring this deck into an event, you've got to be able to flip the mirror in your favor because it's going to be most of your matches. But Tark, I want to ask you as well: um, is what kind of archetypes do you generally gravitate towards? Is it something like Lightning Briar? When I say gravitate towards, you know, maybe in your Magic background or something like that. Um, is there a certain style of play or deck that you would um, prefer to be on? I would honestly just play 60 islands if it meant I win. I won. I <laughs> yeah, so, okay. so uh, like in, in our group, there's like a running joke that I'm like Boggles guy. And like I have registered Boggles for exactly Boggles for people that don't know is a deck that you kind of just put a bunch of equipment on a, a creature that cannot be killed and you just attack it like multiple. It's like one of the like one of the least interactive, least fun decks you could ever play in the game. And I played it for exactly one event ever because I, I thought it was correct. And it ended up being, I think, the best player in the world at the time was at the same event and ended up top eighting uh, with the deck. And, you know, the top 16 was like largely dominated by it. But it just, I, I'm willing to, I don't, I have a pretty wide range and I'll just play any deck that I think is, will give me the best shot at winning. Yeah, for sure. So just a true spike at heart, huh? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> willing to play the best deck. Um, yeah, definitely empathize with that. Hayden, did you have something? I just actually want to pull it back quickly because I think something that you've just talked about through that whole conversation we just had about force of nature and uh, I guess theory behind, like effectively theory behind deck building is one of the most important things that you can do in this game. And I think if people are asking about like, what does someone like Tarek Patel do to go ahead and win you know, US nationals or come off the back of, a, of the calling top eight, uh, it's things like that, right? Like it's these sort of thought processes that you go through to understand like, why is a card in my deck or why am I playing these cards? Like, why am I, how am I trying to sequence games? Um, and it goes all the way through like your deck building all the way through from like the conversation we've had all the way through your deck building all the way through into the way you actually sequence and play your games and your turns. Um, and those are the, the kinds of, I guess, like experience that you've obviously bought or ported over from a game like Magic the Gathering. Um, and, and many people also doing it from other TCGs that enable you to, I guess, um, go in and have success in this format. Like it's not just it's not just the right Tarek at the right time. It's also uh, Tarek with the right thought process at the right time. I think as well. And I just wanted to hit on that and make that really clear that those sort of uh, those sort of thought processes are, are just so key to to having success in this game. Definitely agree with that. And if you don't mind, I can tell a little funny story about my deck too. Please. Because I am so OCD about like ratios and like I don't want more than six blues at any time in my deck. That, you know, the night before the event, I kid you not, like I'm going through it and I had, I needed an 80th card and I cannot think of like a single, I went through every card in existence that I could possibly play in the deck and I could not find a card that would not mess up my ratios because I had a plan for every deck that I expected to see, you know, every card coming in and out and, you know, all my blues, all my reds, all my yellows, I worked them out perfectly. 
and I, I that eightieth card, I could not figure it out. So right before I went to bed, I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Like I'm just gonna play crack bobble in a deck. And you know, all my friends have ha ha ha, like very funny. I'm like, no, I'm dead serious. Like I'm just gonna register crack bobble. And they're like, what? Are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna do it for the story. I'm just gonna tell everybody crack bobble for a crack deck, make it my eightieth <laughs> card, and run with it. And so I went there the morning of, and I went to the head judge just to make sure it was fine. I'm like, I'm gonna register crack bobble, and he's like. One moment, he like looks it up on his phone. He comes back to me. He's like, "Crack Bobble is a token. You are not allowed to put it in your deck." I'm like, "Oh God damn it!" So that's where the coaxing commotion came from in my deck. So for anybody wondering, that should have been a Crack Bobble. <laughs> Did you at least go. put a Crack Bobble in the deck box for like posterity? I didn't think about it. I don't know why, because it has like a back. It doesn't register in my brain that it's a functional token, even though I was told it. So I didn't want to like run the gambit of getting like deck checked and then somebody being like, "What? Well, what is this in your deck?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Question about Coax of Commotion. Would you play that card against a deck like Bravo or a deck like Old Time? Do you think that the Quicken Token effect is symmetrical or do you think it's just going to be net positive for the Briar player? I do think it's likely going to be net positive for the Briar, especially if it is exactly the last attack that uh, you play. But with that being said, so yes, to answer your question, if I needed an extra card versus Bravo or Old Him, I would play it. But I'm also a big proponent of not adding additional cards to your deck. So mm -hmm. anytime I take out cards or bring in cards, I like to take out cards to keep the ratios the same. Uh, I don't think, you know, pushing the game an extra two to three turns favors you. If anything, I think you're kind of, um, you know, allowing yourself to be attacked a couple more times by hammer. And it allows you to set up an end game. Um, it, it's harder to set up the bottom of your deck when you have more cards and it takes longer to get there. Because then you're you're more forced to interact with their attacks if you're at a lower life total, etc. So with that being said, even though I wanted Coax of Commotion in that matchup specifically, there is no card I wanted it more than that was already in my deck, if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. So I would not take any of the existing attacks from the deck out to replace Coax. It would simply be if I was looking for an additional attack, I would put it in the deck, but I don't do that because I don't board up cards. I just thought of... Uh, I just thought of... a. My favorite question, I think, that of this entire podcast, and Hayden is going to love it because T Tark and I had a little conversation about this. So, Tark in the mirror, Garganian Tome or no Garganian Tome? <laughs> you have to Garganian Tome only because it's it's the prisoner's dilemma, right? If you do not play it, um, and your opponent does, they have an edge. Um, so, just like in the prisoner's dilemma, you always choose to steal. I think in the mirror match, it's correct to to just always play Garganian Tome. Ooh. <laughs> So, does the Prisoner's Dilemma hold up if you believe that uh, you may have an edge on your opponent already because you're a better player? So, not to sound arrogant, right? But assuming that you're the better player, do you want to give them the edge of having the Gorganian Tome draw two or only let them have the Gorganian Tome but you'll keep the edge in your play skill? Is that, is that a reasonable kind of variable to factor in? No, and I've never liked those kind of questions especially when they're phased like that because they're a bit of a fallacy right you are the better player quote unquote because you're making the highest expected value decisions time after time so if you are making a lower expected value decision because of a, an illusionary skill gap then i think you're 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 losing an edge not gaining it because overall you're kind of looking at it how can i objectively have the most edge and you know if if you ask the question to two different people and somebody might think yes i have a skill edge i'm going to take that out they're losing out, right? They're losing the prisoner dilemma game. Um, so I think it's a bit of a fallacy, and um, I think you should always just make the highest expected value play, regardless of what you think of your opponent or what you think of yourself. I think that's what gives you the edge, if anything. Yeah, I, th I think the question, like the the way that Brennan's coming from this and the way that Tarek's coming from this, is like uh, very similar. But in, in fact, I think it's just the value that you're both placing on the Gorganian tome is like probably the difference by the sounds of it. You know, like the the Gorganian Tome for one card, Tarek. Obviously, you'd think that is like quite large amount of value gained. Uh, obviously, there's like the implications of the fact heading out for Rabble is not it's not zero percent, right? So, there's there's a few uh, I guess pieces to that. Also, the the other pieces you take that card out, you're replacing it with a different card in that matchup. So there's like it's not just like a straight uh, like to Brendan's point. There's these variables, right? But I think you can remove a lot of those and just play based on the the value of the card that you expect. Um, and I think maybe that's where some of the differences in the conversation is happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would argue that that's that uh, that's not even 
my side, right? I'm just trying to play the the kind of the devil's advocate because okay, honestly, right. <laughs> honestly, I don't really know, right? And you see, you see a kind of a dichotomy of beliefs when it's like, do you play the do you play the Gorgonicum or do you not? And um, for me, my plan during the tournament was to not play it in Swiss, but if I ever played it against Hayden or Dante, I was throwing that bad boy in because <laughs> I didn't think that they would play it against me. But then we probably end up both playing like the same thing. There you go. There's your dilemma. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just play it. No, uh, it's it's. I love that. That's like that's a little a little mind game, kind of like with your opponent already is to Gorganian tome or to not. Um, Tarek, I want to. I think that I think I'm correct here, but is it true that you use your your pro tour invite from Cincinnati on nationals? It is true. That's how I qualified. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know if that's cocky or you know just poor value, but. I just love playing games, especially when I'm having fun at something. I don't care. Like if I just played in it and I scrubbed out and I lost it, it wouldn't have bothered me. I just wanted to play as many games as possible at the highest level. So I was like, yeah, screw it. I'm going to use my PTI for nationals. And it ended up working out. So when yeah, did you I, mean, I, think, yeah, I think it's freaking awesome. When did you decide? Sorry, Tarek, like when did you make that call? Because that's that's like that's like not a, a small call to make, right? You have your invite for the first ever pro tour that's going to happen sometime in the next six to 12 months. Um, you're already like locked away for that. There's a chance to play, you know, you could have just played the calling Orlando, right? You could have just gone and, yeah. and been there and like, okay, I still have a great chance to win this event and to bank a second PCI. Um, but instead you obviously make the decision to, to, to play. So when did you actually make that decision? Right after Cincy, you know, I was like, nationals is coming up. It's the highest event possible. I want to play at the biggest stage at the highest level. You know, I'm having a blast. I emailed them and I'm like, please, please take me. And they're like, okay, you can use your PTI. I'm like, sweet. So, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What a, what a, I mean, we talked about a little bit at the top of the show, but it was in the, kind of an awesome story. I met Tark for the first time in Dallas where he got the crushing, the crushing ninth. And I think that we had a, we had a quick conversation after I finished up my draft, which was to go or not to go. Right. And you said something about like, uh flight prices or something you're like if it's below x i'm going i was like dude just go you're gonna like you're gonna get it just go and i think a lot of people gave you that same uh kind of that same sentiment so I'm, you know obviously it worked out extremely well getting that pti and then taking it to nationals and becoming the champion yeah it's wild how like one or two conversations because i honestly wasn't going to go if like i looked up the flight and it was like 400 dollars or something stupid i wasn't going to go but i think between you and tan and both being like just go, just go. And I was like, okay, if it's below X and I pull it up and it was, and yeah, I, I just like booked it on the spot pretty much. So yeah, so, crazy how things work out, right? That's a great, everything, everything about it is a fantastic story. Like I said, coming from magic, you know, really putting your nose to the grindstone, becoming the champion, getting, you know, bubbling out at ninth, using that as fuel to, you know, go back and get second, get it. And then becoming the champion in the rematch. It's just ridiculous. It's probably the best narrative flesh and blood has. Uh, in its history but let's talk about the future right since we all have ptis now mm-hmm. Tark, i want to hear what are your hopes for 2022 the pro tour and worlds um you know i think everybody hopes that they just keep winning uh once lss kind of announces what next year will look like i'll have more of a better answer for you but as of now uh the next step is kind of just knocking new zealand off their kind of pedestal <laughs> um <laughs> Speaking of them, you know, they're they're great people. They're very fun. I think they're a bit smug, maybe rightly so, maybe not, but I'm coming for them next. So uh, I want to play at the highest level, which means playing against New Zealand. Uh, you know, I, I talk some shit, but it's mostly for fun. You know, I love them all, but uh, I do want to kind of beat them at their own games. So I'm really looking forward to the Pro Tour season. I'm really looking forward to World, and uh, I want to beat them pretty bad. So... <laughs> Are you are you planning on traveling frequently for let's say we had you know I, I think that some p like based off kind of the numbers it looks like maybe thirty callings next year. Are you planning on traveling in the U.S. like you did for you know the sole sprint? Obviously, we did Dallas, Cincinnati, and Orlando. But uh, you know, say we have quite a few callings next year, will you be traveling to a lot of them as well? Yeah. So if my schedule allows it, um, you know, unfortunately my my work schedule is quite demanding at times and. Uh, it does come first in a lot of respects. Um, so I'll, I'll be scheduling around it. The good thing is that my schedule kind of lines up around June and I'll have a couple of months off. Um, but schedule willing, schedule allowing, I will be hopefully grinding the circuit next year. Um, so yeah, you can expect to see me at most, if not all the callings and pro tours. 
That's super exciting, super cool. I actually just wanted to, I want to add a bit of fuel to the uh, to the fire, Tarek, to what you spoke about just previously, about wanting to, to knock uh, a certain country off their pedestal. And having played callings in both New Zealand and uh, and the US, I think uh, there's going to be some shocks for a few people when the world comes together and gets to play, you know, the first, first pro tour, the first world champs, uh, whether it's a calling where people are able to easily travel. I played against some very, very good players on the weekend. Um, there is... There is a number of players, especially in, in the US, who are really, you know, in the past few months are coming up and are doing a very good job, very just naturally skilled, but also really understand the game uh, and, and are putting in work as well. So I think by the time we get to that first pro tour, we get to uh, callings where people are able to uh, travel a bit easier. Uh, I think there's going to be some some surprises for a few people. So I just thought I'd add a bit of uh, a bit of petrol on the, uh, on, the, on the top there. <laughs> well, I hope so. It'll be fun to watch too, you know. I think that kind of drama and excitement kind of just adds to it too, especially if you're from New Zealand or from America or from Canada or wherever, and you get to see your guy go up against theirs. I think it's just, it's a lot of fun to play in and I hope it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And I just can't wait for it. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of what the pro tour is all about, right? Is we start to lean in more to those narratives and start to lean in back into the player backgrounds, the stories, the rivalries, kind of the, um, you know, everything that makes the players that make flesh and blood. I think that's going to be really exciting to watch. Cause like, I'm already starting to get a bit, uh, you know, a bit entrenched in it. Right. I was watching, I was watching your final and stuff. And I, Hayden will tell you, we were walking to, we were walking away from the venue and uh, we we're walking to meet up like for this, like patient meetup or something. And I had it on my phone and I was just doing like a play by play, like narration of that final. Cause it was just brutal. Yeah. It could have gone either way. Michael shout out to Michael, by the way, what an amazing player. Just, the way he played that final game was uh, like actually just watching like an artist paint. Uh, just some of the sequencing and some of the way you know he played some of his turns was just actually unreal. Like even from his opponents, I'm like, this is not good for me. But goddamn, I tip my hat to him. So he's going to be an amazing player next year as well, and I'm excited to see what he does. Yeah, it, it's unbelievable that you two were able to play in Cincinnati and then run back the final. It's just like. Just the things that have to happen for that to be possible are just incredible. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of daggering him like all throughout the first day and second day. And as I was winning and he was winning, and then he picked up a lost day one, I think. And I was still winning day one. So I'm like, oh, you better make top eight. Like, you can't lose now. So yeah, it was just it's all in good fun. Uh, Michael knows I love him. But uh, yeah, it was it was an unreal finish and definitely uh, like a storybook finish, too. I'm just glad I came out on top of this one and not at uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you wouldn't, yeah, yeah. It's actually like I didn't even realize until the final was happening, and Brendan was like, "You know, this is a rematch of the final in Cincinnati." And I, was, I just, I didn't even click until that point. Like there was so many other, I guess there was like this, just a lot happening in that top eight. It was a stacked top eight, right? And there's a lot of things happening. So, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably my favorite story of the weekend, actually, to be honest. Sweet. All right. Well, Tarek, again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm really excited for, and I think I've said this to you in person many times, I'm very excited for the future. I'm very excited for 2022. I'm excited to see you on the Pro Tour as well as Hayden. Um, and I think that Legend Story is absolutely going to, you know, going to crush it and we're going to have an incredible year ahead of us. But again, thank you so much for joining us. For everybody else in the comments, Gorganian Tome or no Gorganian Tome? Let's say it in. Until then, that's time of the round. Active player. Um, well, I just, whatever it is. I'll see you again. <laughs> it's time in the round. <laughs>